Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Oh, I'm so excited. I was like going to say hi. And then I just said, ho, <laughs> hi, <laughs> hi, ho, Emily. I'm so excited to have you here on the Arthritis Life podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. As we get started, can you just let the audience know a little bit about you? Like, where do you live and what is your relationship to chronic illness? Absolutely. So um, I live in Tucson, Arizona, and I have several chronic illnesses, um, including the ones that we're going to be talking about today. And I also am an occupational therapist and my practice is primarily with working with people who also have chronic illnesses, whether it's, it's POTS or Ehlers-Danlos, we'll talk about today, or Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis, um, arthritis, those kinds of things. So yeah, that's so, it's so wonderful when you can blend your like professional lens with your personal patient lens. <laughs> um, that's what I do too. So I'm biased towards thinking yes. that's awesome. And yes. yeah, can you let the audience know a little bit about your personal, like what your personal diagnosis story slash saga for POTS and, and EDS? And we'll, we're going to define what those acronyms mean as she okay. talks. <laughs> okay. I don't know if everyone knows what they stand for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll try and keep it more of a story and less of a saga, but I uh, <laughs> um, started having symptoms when I was um, pretty young and those started to get worse when I was an adolescent, um, which is really common with the diagnoses that I have around um, 14 is when mine started to get a lot worse. And it, what were the symptoms? Oh, if you don't mind me mm -hmm. asking. Yeah. 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 So um, lots of, of joint pain and um, leg pain, which is really common in kids with Ehlers-Danlos or EDS. Um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is EDS and POTS is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And so my POTS symptoms really started to get worse when I was 14. And those look like um, feeling like you're going to pass out. So 
um, not necessarily passing out. So it's a lot of times dismissed, but it's this, you know, kind of your vision going black, feeling nauseous, getting really dizzy, lightheaded, um, tachycardia or heart racing, and basically needing to get yourself to the ground in order for those symptoms to resolve. And then um, also things like digestive symptoms were really some of my biggest symptoms that eventually led me to a provider um, and started to get more answers. The other things were kind of dismissed, although the digestive symptoms were dismissed um, for a lot, like a lot of people as IBS for years and years. So it was six years before I had a diagnosis with, um, after that onset at 14. And then after that, it was sort of like one diagnosis after the other, because as a lot of people experience with Ehlers-Danlos, it's sort of this umbrella. And once you have that figured out, the other things start to make sense and other diagnoses that a lot of times follow um, because you're in a category versus being out on an island and having no idea what's going on at all. Yeah, yeah. And I often say that, you know, the hardest part for me was being undiagnosed because you don't even know where to start, right? I mean, it's such a scary, and especially during puberty when so much is changing too. So it's like, oh, it's growing pains or, oh, you know, it's the hormones, right? So, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So let's go into what these, um, these conditions entail, because like, for example, I have a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. And if you look at the anxiety symptoms, they can even say, you know, when you have starting to have an anxiety attack or panic attack, you start feeling dizzy, lightheaded. So sometimes I've wondered, gosh, I wonder if I have POTS on top of that. Cause I know I have anxiety, but you know, um, I do sometimes feel like even if I'm not anxious at all, I'll stand up and suddenly feel like, well, I'm going to pass out, you know? So anyway, but yeah, so can you tell, um, you know, what, um, what let's start with POTS actually, just cause I think that's more, um, straightforward. And then let's talk about e what EDS is and then what is hypermobility in general? Cause you can have hypermobility without Ehlers-Danlos. <laughs> so Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So POTS, which I defined it's postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's a form of dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, which is called dysautonomia. Um, and so your autonomic nervous system controls your heart rate, your blood pressure, your temperature regulation. Um, your digestion in part, um, and, you know, breathing all of these sorts of really automatic things, like feeling the urge to go to the bathroom, um, thirst, all, a lot of these things are controlled by your autonomic nervous system. And so if there's dysfunction there, then a lot of that just kind of goes awry. And so people have a lot of those feelings, like I just described, often they are when standing up, um, you know, moving from laying down to standing up or when you've stand standing for a long period of time, a lot of times the, um, gravity just kind of takes the blood into your lower body when you stand up. And so for a lot of folks, for the typical person, um, your blood pressure sort of, uh, recalibrates and it adjusts. And so it helps the blood to be able to pump in and redistribute and circulate appropriately. But when you have POTS, um, a lot of times the case is that either the blood just sort of stays in your lower body or the signal is just sort of off in terms of, um, you know, feeling this like adrenaline rush. Um, it produces maybe too much of that kind of stress hormone. And so the heart works really hard to pump more blood back up. Um, and so it presents a lot like anxiety and 
I would, I would argue the majority of people with POTS have been told that's probably anxiety, you know, before they're diagnosed number of times or for how long, you know, that, that is arguable, but, um, uh, but yeah, so that, that's sort of what that looks like. And that sense of getting up too fast is kind of a, a pretty cardinal. That's, that's the, you know, the symptom for most people is feeling like I got up too fast, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's sort of what POTS looks like. And, and then for, yeah. You know what, actually, sorry, I, I sent you this nice overview or, or these list of questions that I'm already going to go a little out of order okay. because <laughs> this is just how I am. <laughs> but um, yeah, for the people, a lot of the people listening um, have an autoimmune diagnosis, you know, and or like an autoimmune form of arthritis diagnosis. And so it's something that I found when, when researching to talk to you, because I'm really fascinated by this um, personally, and also because of the people I work with. And, you know, if, people who have autoimmune issues, um, you know, there is a connection between autoimmunity and the development of POTS, but it's not clear whether it's like just condition specific, like maybe people with rheumatoid arthritis more than a different, you know, form of like psoriatic arthritis. But um, there's an interesting, I'm going to link in the comments or in the show notes to an article from the rheumatologist, which is the official publication of the American College of Rheumatology and Association of Rheumatology Professionals. This is like a journal for the rheumatologists and professionals. And, um, but it says, if this is from March, 2021, experts discuss three frequently overlooked syndromes and POTS is one of them. And they even said, you know, an anxious woman, the, the, the case study that they do in this is, is an anxious woman with a chronic headache and con constant myofascial pain and having assorted gastrointestinal symptoms, fatigue, normal lab results, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, instead of just dismissing this person as, oh, it's all just anxiety, actually it was POTS. So um, this is a great overview in, in the rheumatology journal, but just so you know, people listening, you know, this is something that you might be more likely to have if you have an autoimmune arthritis diagnosis. And the other thing that I know is a very hot topic right now is the association between things like POTS and dysautonomia in general and long COVID. So what have you been learning about that recently? Or what are your thoughts on like, are people who've had, are people who are starting to develop long COVID symptoms kind of potentially more prone to developing POTS? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, that is definitely the case. Um, I'm so glad you you brought that connection up with autoimmunity because I think POTS is often missed in people with autoimmune conditions because you have a name for your condition, you know, um, or vice versa. People are diagnosed with POTS and they're not diagnosed with the underlying autoimmune condition. So it's really important that we don't just say, you know, oh, this is, there's a name for what you have. It's, you know, there's not really a lot we can do about it. So who really cares if you get this diagnosis or not? You know, it does matter if you get this diagnosis so that you have an understanding of what's happening. And um, it's, it's, un, it's not unlikely that there's an autoimmune association. So um, with long COVID, the other really common cause for POTS is a, um, a viral illness. So in the past, you know, we would think of the flu or um, Epstein-Barr syndrome or mono, and there's a lot of different kinds of things that have caused POTS in the past. Now we have long COVID and it's affecting so many, so many people. Um, there's, you know, huge ranges between 10% to 30% of people who develop, who acquire COVID um, end up developing long COVID. And often these are people who had very, um, 
you know, relatively simple cases, right? Didn't, weren't hospitalized, um, may have even been asymptomatic, um, but really mild courses of, long, of COVID that are now developing long COVID. And so a percentage of those folks have POTS or have a different form of autonomic dysfunction or dysautonomia. And so definitely we're seeing it. And even if they don't meet the criteria for POTS, which would be 30, an increase of 30 beats per minute of heart rate by standing up. So they do what's called a tilt table test. They strap you to a table and you go from laying down to sort of an almost upright position and they monitor your blood pressure and your heart rate. And if that heart rate increases 30 beats, then basically you qualify for, for POTS you know, with a few other things that they have to take into account. So even if it's not going up that high in a lot of folks, it's going up to some percentage, you know, to some degree, and they're experiencing the fatigue, the brain fog uh, for sure. Um, and just this overall feeling of unwell, you know, uh, of not being able to return to those daily activities that they could do before. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and we're going to later on address like how occupational therapists can help people you know, with POTS and dysautonomias in general. Um, but I also want to cover EDS and hypermobility because um, there's a lot of confusion about, about you know, is, is everyone with EDS, does everyone with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome have hypermobility or, you know, there's all these different types. So um, yeah, what are, what are some of the hallmarks or what are the, what's the <clears throat> disease overview for, I always say Ehlers-Danlos, is that right? Yeah, I'm maybe I'm just lazy, but I or yeah, I say Ellers Danlos, but okay. some people say Ehlers Danlos, oh, which I okay. think is probably the more official, but I never say that because I don't okay. I don't know. It's okay. like <laughs> European or something. So um so I'm not sure how to actually pronounce it specifically, but Ehlers Danlos syndrome is a group of connective tissue disorders. Um and generally speaking, most of them um, are characterized by joint hypermobility, kind of stretchy skin um, or skin that could be stretched further than what would be considered normal. Um, and then also fragile tissues. And so there's 13 different subtypes as of now, at least this is regularly changing. We don't have a good understanding of Ehlers-Danlos still at this time. Um, but the idea that you know it's inherited, it's we have the gene identified for 12 out of the 13 subtypes. Um, the one that we don't have a gene for is the most common form, which is the hypermobile form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And so, um, so the difference between you know Ehlers-Danlos and um, hypermobility spectrum disorder and you know, just some hypermobility in the general population. I, I kind of put those into three different buckets. You know, um, Ehlers-Danlos has very specific criteria. Like I mentioned, there's a genetic tests for most of the types with the exception of the hypermobile type. And so there's this combination of um, major and minor criteria that you have to meet. You know, there's certain, you have to have these certain types of things happening. And then these are a collection of other things that you could have, and you have to have a certain number of those. And then the, for, um, for you know, joint hypermobility syndrome, which is what we used to call it, or um, hypermobility spectrum disorder, it's a spectrum 
um, of how hypermobile you are, how stretchy your joints are. Um, hypermobility just means movement beyond what would be typical in a, a typical person. So for example, when you straighten your elbows out, is there a straight line or is there kind of a bend backwards? So a lot of times yeah. we'll see this when people are really excited and they take a picture and they, you know, put their arms up and they stretch to the full. And then it's, that's kind of like this revealing of, oh, you have some hypermobility, you know, in your yeah, elbows. Like, like when you put your arms straight up, like next yes. to your, your elbows kind of next to your ears, it would be like, instead of there being a straight line between like your shoulder, elbow and wrist, it would be like, uh, like, I don't exactly. know what you call it. Okay. I, I'm doing, I'm trying to say this in words, but it's hard to say like yeah. there would be your hands would be like making a V yes. like your elbows are still next to your kind of uh, ears, but then there's like your hands are going out to the side yeah. away from your head. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, yeah, that's, it's, I, I want to go back for one second, just again, trying to think of like a beginner's mind. So when we say in general, EDS is, is a group of connective tissue disorders. Yes let's define what, what is connective tissue? Is that the joint? Is that in the joint or where is it? <laughs> where isn't it is actually it? the yeah. question, right? Because it's everywhere. Um, and it's one of the reasons why people with hypermobility often have gastrointestinal issues um, and also joint pain, muscle pain. Um, basically your connective tissue lines, you know, everything in your body, it's, um, fascia, the word fascia is kind of trendy right now, but, um, fascia is connective tissue. Um, mm -hmm. and so it's, it's just, it's basically everywhere. And so, um, the reason why it's a connective tissue disorder is that there's, there's collagen, which is a protein, um, that makes up it makes our tissue either, you know, it makes it strong and it also makes it elastic. And so with people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, there's a difference in their collagen and the way their body produces that protein. So therefore it affects joints, it affects their ligaments, it affects muscles um, and all kinds of body parts. Like I mentioned, even the digestive tract um, yeah. and, and also your blood vessels. Um, and so even yes. your blood vessels have connective tissue. So your veins, um, might be stretchier. And so that's a lot of times why POTS and EDS go together is if these veins are more stretchy then when you stand up and the gravity takes your blood down, your veins basically just stretch instead of what they should do, which is, um, to contract or to tighten, to help push the blood back up. So yeah, that's, mm -hmm. that's what connective tissue is. It's everywhere. And, and collagen is the reason why there's that difference for people with Ehlers-Danlos. That's, that's super helpful. And I'm just going to read just for the record, the definition in Encyclopedia Britannica for connective tissue. It says the group of tissues in the body that maintains the form of the body and its organs and provides cohesion and internal support. It includes several types of fibrous tissues that vary only in their density and cellularity, as well as the more specialized and recognizable variants, bone, ligaments, tendons, cartilage, and adipose fat tissue. So what, what is important to know about this is that it's kind of like, I'm, I'm making a weird analogy in my head, but it's like when people hear rheumatoid arthritis and they think, oh, it just means your joints hurt. Actually, no, it's a, a big, like it's a systemic disease that affects a lot of different body tissues and systems, right? Heart, lungs, eyes. In the same way, when people hear EDS and they think, oh, that's just some random hypermobility, that just means they can like do all these party tricks and like, you know, put their thumb down to their elbow or whatever. And it's actually it affects all the tissues in, in your body. 
And so it's really important to get that diagnosis to know, do you have maybe there's people who have maybe hypermobility, like somebody who does like yoga a lot. And they're just like, Oh, like my hips are kind of hypermobile. Or like when I was a swing dancer, I was like, some people have more mobility than others in their joints. Right. And that's, but there's no thing systemic going on. It's just kind of, you know, so how does, how, who diagnoses this? <laughs> like, is yeah. it a rheumatologist or? Uh, or theoretically someone? it could, should be, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very frustrating, um, for patient, the patient community and, and also for healthcare providers who are seeing these patients, because it's really hard to find people that are willing to diagnose it. Um, I think there's, because it affects so many body parts, it, people often see a lot of specialists and there's not a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, who are willing to be that you know, person to, to diagnose this big picture thing. Um, <clears throat> so theoretically, either a geneticist or a rheumatologist, those are the two people who should technically diagnose it. Um, but in a lot of the literature I've been reading lately, people, especially like over in Europe, really recommend like, this should be your family doctor, that they should be able to diagnose this. So, in, you know, in the United States, that would be our primary care physicians. But I read another article that says, you know, uh, the, the family doctor will probably only see one of these cases in their entire career. And I don't actually know, I don't know how accurate that is. I think, you know, we call these conditions rare. I, I really don't think they're rare. I think in 10 years, maybe, you know, definitely within 20 years, we'll be saying we had this way wrong. Like this was a lot more common than we thought. But that being said, what you just said about the difference between maybe a dancer who is more hypermobile and someone who actually has a hypermobility spectrum disorder or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, it's, it's really based on whether or not it's systemic or if it's localized, like you just said, Cheryl. And so if, if you have really stretchy wrists, like, okay, that might not mean anything, right? You know, people will often start to do this criteria that we have, which is bringing your thumb to your wrist and whether your thumb can touch your wrist and pulling your pinky back and straightening your elbows and straightening your knees to see if they, they hyperextend or they go backwards. Um, and then putting your hands flat on the floor. And just because you can do those things, it doesn't mean that you have one of these conditions and doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have any issues. If you have pain, now that's where the conversation really changes. And that's where it's really helpful to get into someone who knows something about this. That's super, super helpful. And I'm sure it's, it's frustrating to hear that there's not like the EDS specialist, you know, doctor, but, um, and I totally agree with you. I think it's underdiagnosed for sure. Um, and I, I wanted to make the connection to arthritis for those listening. I actually have in the support group I'm facilitating right now, m way more than usual, um, people who have doctor diagnosed, you know, EDS, um, which is uh, what sparked me to learn more about it in general. Um, and also being friends with you <laughs> as social media friends and now real life friends. But, um, so I was reading that in general, people with more severe or progressed rheumatoid arthritis are more likely to have hypermobility in general, regardless of, um, of whether it's actually EDS as pro-inflammatory interleukins in the synovial fluid of rheumatoid arthritis associated with joint hypermobility, which is interesting because more progressed and severe rheumatoid arthritis is associated with deformities like that are more like fixed deformities that you actually can't you become less mobile in your fingers. So it just, it's very complex, but that's just one piece of research I found. And then in general, one in 50 people with rheumatoid arthritis 
um, will have a diagnosis of EDS, which actually seemed pretty high to me. I, I've, I don't know that, that many, but I think that's good that that's being identified. And then one in five people with lupus will have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which I hadn't, I had never heard that before either. This is just from ARC Canada, um, newsletter. So, um, and also in the article, an article in nature magazine. Um, so Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, hypermobility type is associated with rheumatic diseases in general. So there is some connect. If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up. I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks. And it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through. People who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March, 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room, with a capital T and capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. But I think it's, I think one of the things that, um, whenever you have comorbidities, you get into this chicken or egg thing. If I'm experiencing X, I'm experiencing joint pain, just a simple syndrome, a simple phenomenon, not simple, but you know, a classic symptom of rheumatoid arthritis, but I also have an EDS diagnosis. I think a lot of times uh, patients, we get kind of caught in the cycle of like, is it this, is it that, is it, is it my EDS or is it RA? Um, I, interestingly, I encountered one person who said what was in for them, they had EDS and rheumatoid arthritis. And when they got their rheumatoid arthritis under control, their EDS started bothering them more. And that was because the rheumatoid arthritis flaring up 
decreased their mobility mm-hmm. in their joints. Mm-hmm. And so then when they had their, their inflammation was gone from their rheumatoid arthritis, they were able to accidentally like, you know, hyper extend mm. their joints and stuff. But anyway, do you have any advice for people who have both conditions and it's okay if you don't, cause it's very specific to the individual, you know, but, um, for coping with that kind of uncertainty, like I've said many times on the podcast, uncertainty is my biggest trigger for anxiety. I've discovered you're just not knowing, is it this, is it that, you know, if I have a, if I'm having hand pain, is it my EDS flaring up? Is it my arthritis flaring up? How do you approach those kind of situations? <laughs> That's like yeah. 16 questions in one. <laughs> Sorry. No, absolutely. Um, that, that number is higher than the general population for sure in terms of the, the incidence of it. And so um, I haven't actually worked with many people. I had a couple, but who have, um, you know, some form of arthritis as well as, as um, EDS, except osteoarthritis. I've had several patients who've had OA, you know, in their thumb, which is the most common, common place for it with, with hypermobility. But, um, that idea of uncertainty is I think pretty universally one of the most challenging parts of, of honest, I think any chronic illness, you know, in the research that I've done in my own, um, you know, survey studies and research and things, that's the, the, the biggest thing that comes up consistently is, the the fluctuation of symptoms and and you know that things kind of pop up we, we talk about with allerstanlos like whack-a-mole right and i think they talk about that with other conditions yes too, but it's like, i do yeah <laughs> it's like yeah and exactly what you just described right with ra like okay i've got this better you know i've whacked that mole like this it, my inflammation is better and whatever now suddenly EDS is popping up and, you know, and it's the same kind of thing, whether it's different kinds of symptoms or, and so that that's really hard, you know, psychologically. And like you mentioned with anxiety, cause it's like that, that game of what if, what if I get worse, you know, what if, um, I, I have a flare again. So I think the biggest thing you can do is try and live in the moment. And that's just definitely not very easy and not honestly helpful for a lot of times people who have anxiety, you know, but, um, well, it's harder if you have anxiety, but it's more important. It's kind of like that. There's an old saying that someone asked this monk, like how often should you meditate? And it's like, um, you know, this is, I'm going to butcher this, but you'll get the concept, which is like, okay. 10 minutes every morning and evening, but if you're really busy, 30 minutes, three times a day, it's like, you know what I mean? You say, if you're really busy, you actually have to do it more, you know? So if you're anxious, you actually have to try harder to live in the moment because it's, you have this barrier. That's this desire to control. You want to control the future because you feel like, this is just me, but you feel like if you can control everything, then you won't be as anxious. But the problem is it's, it's an illusion ultimately. So yeah. And so finding that acceptance of like, I, I can't control it, but like you and I, you know, both feel strongly is I think having that toolbox of like, what can I control? Um, it's, it's not possible for me to know what mole is going to pop up next, but I can do my best to, to keep my body as, you know, quote unquote healthy as I can. And, and my mind as healthy as I can, you know, with whether it's like keeping a routine, you know, getting exposure to like sunlight every day, maintaining your hydration, you know, drinking water, like having social connections, some of those very basic things that, that all of us need to stay healthy mind and body, um, help you to be more resilient. Right. And so if you have this underlying, like, 
I, I have these things in place. I have my, my contacts, I have my team, you know, maybe I don't have to go see this therapist right now, but I, I know who I have and I know I, I can go to them if I need them, whether that's a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or a psychotherapist, you know, a counselor to be able to say like, all right, I'm doing well right now. I, I can go to that person when I need to. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we're going to talk more about the OT role, but actually now that we're talking about the toolbox, I would love to know just on a personal level, like what are some of the tools you use on a daily or weekly or monthly basis to manage POTS and EDS? Yeah, there's, it's such a funny question because, um, I, I did not go into OT to do this work and same with me. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. I mean, I never saw an OT unsurprisingly me to me now, nobody referred me to one and I don't, I don't even know who I would have seen because there just aren't a lot of chronic illness OTs. I think um, there there can be, you know, if 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 people find the right people. But um, so uh, so it's funny because I didn't even know what I was doing. Like I, I just I don't know. I I started doing these things and they started to help me. But after going to OT school and seeing some patients with POTS and EDS, I, I realized like oh I kind of micromanaged my illness in all these ways that I hadn't really thought of and and built off those skills I learned in OT school. So some examples of those are um, a routine. I'm pretty crazy about my sleep food routine. And my boyfriend is actually the one that pointed that out to me. Uh, when we moved in together, he was like, do you realize that like every night you do these things in this order, in this way at this time? And so I think I really protect my body, um, not out of fear, but just out of like, I know that my body does well with these things. And so, you know, if I'm going to be out this late or whatever, um, I need to get home at this time, or I need to be able to sleep in the next day. Like, I'm not going to put my body in situations where it's, it's not going to be able to recover from X, Y, Z. Um, so that's well, something I'm huge on. Yeah. What is your, like, can you walk me through yeah. your sleep routines? I think other people are going to want to know like, Oh, I want to, yeah. I want to do her sleep routine. <laughs> see if it works for me. Yeah. So funny. And if it's, yeah. Yeah. No, it's so, it's so funny. Cause it's so true. And, and I often, I'd often don't, don't tell people certain things because I don't want them to feel like, um, well, if I do what Emily does, then I'm going to be okay. You know? But it's, it's really not that complicated. It's just that it's consistent. So, you know, it's, it's basically like I get, um, I take a shower at night, every single night. Um, and I know a lot of people with fatigue, like that's a really hard thing for them. So that might not be the right thing, but sometimes I'll even tell people like using, um, you know, a bed bath or wipes or a, um, foot bath or something to just feel clean, um, in whatever way that looks like for you. But the warm water is really helpful to help start sleep. Um, and there's like a whole trick behind that. So, so I do that and I, you know, brush my teeth, wash my face, you know, do all those kind of like self-care things. Um, I usually have a snack and it's right after my shower. It's just like something really small. And um, yeah, I like take my pills and, and then I go straight to bed. And that is where I think the key is for me is if I take my shower at seven and I don't go to bed till 10, it doesn't work anymore. There's like this window of time where that's helpful. And I, I it just really relaxes my mind. It relaxes my muscles and it, it's a routine for my, my brain. That's like next come sleep. You know, we don't have to worry or think about sleep. The next thing is that we're going to fall asleep. And um, I used to have huge sleep issues. And so it's a real success that for the last four or five years, I really haven't had sleep issues. And do you, do, have you um, carefully chosen 
your like physical sleep environment, like in terms of how firm your mattress is and your pillow. And yeah. Cause like I, for example, one thing that it's a, some people love it. Some people hate it, but I have a 10 pound weighted blanket. I really love that. Except for if it's too warm, then mm-hmm. I don't like it. But, um, mm-hmm. but that's really comforting for me. Um, yeah. But what do you have? Like certain like tech I'm very picky about textures too like textures and yes yeah what's that like yeah so um and and OTs are the the queen the the queens are are kings there are some guys too um who are like the sensory queens you know I say like we we know a lot about sensory processing and so I hadn't even realized my own sort of sensory preferences but as a kid I I was really really hypersensitive and did not have couldn't have sand. I felt like I had sand in my bed if there was any dirt or crumbs or anything. So I do not spend any time in my bed and really in my room during the day at all. It's definitely reserved for sleep. And um, yeah, I like my sheets to be like crisp. I do not make my bed and waste energy, you know, obsessing over it. But in the morning before I get out of bed, I pull my sheets up onto me and then I sort of slide out of bed. So it saves energy, it saves my, my joints and everything because of the position I'm in instead of bending over. But my bed is, you know, relatively speaking, it's made. So the way I leave it is the way I find it at night. Um, I tuck myself in um, to bed, you know, I, I tuck my sheets into myself and that's a sensory thing that I, I, real, I didn't realize, but it, it helps me to feel safe and secure and that idea of compression around me. So I don't use a weighted blanket, but I know a lot of people love them. Um, and uh, yeah, my mattress, you know, I have a memory foam, mat- uh, memory foam mattress and I don't sleep very well on hotel room beds. Like there's a lot of those very specific things that I have um, in place. So, and then I would say, you know, throughout the day, there's, um, if I'm, ha- you know, I have my tools, um, I might, I have some splints that I might wear. Um, if my hands are feeling worse, so kind of paying attention to those early warning signs and those like early indicators that I might need some extra support. I think those are the things that you don't know early on. You haven't learned about your body. You're just sort of like always in pain or you're always feeling and you don't get that relief to then know how to adjust. And so for me, it's this like tuning in enough, not obsessing, not like tracking every symptom or, you know, really worrying about it, but to have that awareness um, at, at, during breaks throughout the day to say like, oh, this has changed. Maybe I'm overusing it. You know, maybe I need to put something on whatever that looks like. I, I so agree. That's why I, when I teach people strategies for fatigue, I always say like, we have a lot better preventative tools for fatigue than we do remedial tools. Like once the fatigue is bad, it is, there's not a lot you can do to like, you know, I wish there was like a magic, you know, pill you could take to make your fatigue go away. I mean, maybe there's like illegal drugs, <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but, um, yes. but, but that, yeah, like you said, paying attention throughout the day and learning. I think this is when you have anxiety too, it's hard to be like, I need to learn how to pay attention enough in a way that's like functional and not obsessive, like, because there definitely can be the uh, tendency, especially in the early stages to be like 
paying attention in this like anxious way where you're like, I have to, I have to figure out everything. And just saying like, okay, like this, this is why mindfulness has helped me. It's all about like a curiosity, like a curiosity mindset, you know, and just, okay, is my body telling me I might need to rest a little bit? Or is it telling me I need more support? And you mentioned splints. These splints are there to provide like an external support to keep your joints from going out of um, position. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so then knowing, um, you know, what am I going to be doing this week or this day? You know, I look at my schedule at the beginning of every week and I'm sure that I haven't like overbooked myself. And I don't mean that I do that perfectly, but I try. I, I, I try. do as I say, not as I do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but what you mentioned about fatigue, you know, it, it just, I literally just was talking to a patient yesterday who overdid it at the end of her you know, semester in college. And it, she was like studying and packing and you know, just doing all the things. And I found myself so quickly going to like, how do we prevent this from next time? And then I said to her, I know that's not very helpful for you right now, but there's not as much that we can do once it happens. You really just have to rest. And I think the same in a lot of ways for pain, like once you get so far in it, you know, there's not as much we can do. It's sort of like ride it out until it gets a little better. We want to manage it but much better would be how to like notice those early signs and to back off before it gets worse. Yeah, I totally agree. And when, um, I think something that I learned in acceptance and commitment therapy is that, you know, this is something that Dr. Bronnie Thompson said in one of our first episodes of the arthritis life podcast, but sometimes we it's, you know, totally valid to say like, I'm going to, it's going to be worth it to me to suffer the consequence of overdoing it because of whatever yep. life event it is. And I, the, what, the example I always think of is like a wedding. Mm-hmm. Like there's only a wedding is like a time specific event. You can't like, you can only pace yourself so much within a wedding. Right. So you might say, I know in advance that I, I'm going to, you know, I want to have the experience of being out on the dance floor or doing, you know, pushing myself. I know that this will, I am going to have to pay for it for yep. one or two or three days afterwards, but sometimes it's worth it for a specific events. So thinking that your whole life doesn't have to be you know, uh, the whole point of your life isn't to manage your symptoms perfectly, right? You want to manage your symptoms so that you can have a life that you, you know, that you, that it is enjoyable to you and that where you're not, um, again, I mean, I'm just going to reiterate what I just said, but yeah, I'm not making, yeah. I think it's a trap to fall into to say that everything in my life has to be around managing my symptoms. However, when it's, when your symptoms are so severe that they, you can't enjoy the present moment, of course you do need to manage yeah. them. Yeah. And, and I'm even planning a trip to the beach this summer right now. And I've been thinking there's, you know, it, it's a lot is out of my control, which I don't do well with. Um, and so these friends are like, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it's like, I, I need to know all of the things that are going to be planned. I need to have an idea of the schedule. So then I can choose what's worth it. You know, like they're talking about this where you get to go swim with baby seals or something. I'm like, that sounds great. But like, it's a two hour boat ride out. It's a two hour boat ride in. And it's a long day. If I'm going to do that, then I might not be able to do something else. And I'm okay with that because I've, I found my place with that of recognizing like, this is, I'm going to enjoy this a lot. And so that's going to be worth it. Um, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's such an important thing that we learn through time. Yeah. When yeah. is it going to be worth it? I think it's a terrible feeling to be like, Oh, I push myself and then outside of what I, what I knew would be my comfort zone in terms of pain and fatigue. And then it was like, it's not even worth it. You know, and you're right. like, darn Absolutely. it. So, yeah, I think you and I are someone that for me, protecting my sleep is super important. Like yeah. I protect my sleep, like 
viciously or whatnot. Like even when I used to do swing dancing, which was a little bit brutal because the dances would like, I would literally teach a dance lesson from like seven. I would teach a dance lesson from like seven 30 to eight 30, eight 30, nine 30. And the dance started at nine 30. <laughs> this is before when my disease was in like, you know, more and closer right. to remission, but, um, but I was still having, you know, the tendency to get fatigued. I would take a nap. Like people would th- say, Oh, you have so much energy. But, like I took a nap from like five to seven, like literally like two, like, I, I got my first two hours of my, my bedtime sleep you know, before, because I'm like, I, I can't just give up that sleep. I just had to kind of chunk it out earlier in the day. So, yeah, you know, figuring out, and I know not everyone can nap. Napping can make people just feel groggy, but I'm very lucky that napping works for me. Are you a napper? Sorry. There's my cat. <laughs> I'm definitely not a napper except for that is so funny. I used to, I used to be when I was my, I was a lot sicker. Um, but it's so funny because yesterday I took two 10 minute naps. One was intentional. I've been learning more about naps and the sleep cycles. And Mm -hmm. really, I used to always say 30 minutes. And I just recently have been learning that actually 10 minutes is really good. Um, But I literally had 10 minutes before I had to go to work. And I, I, anyway, I figured it out. But last night, my body decided I was napping. I was actually looking up stuff for this podcast. I fell asleep upright at 730 with my like hand under my chin, like looking at my computer for 10 minutes. And then I woke up and then I was like, okay, I feel a lot better actually. And then I continued, you know, so, Um, but that's not normal. I usually can, I I usually just give up and go to sleep. I just like, yeah, but we love sleep. I I have, I'm thinking about having a t-shirt made. that says sleep diva. (laughs) Oh my God, sleep diva. Like my husband knows it's like, it's literally like a love language. Like he'll be like, like, it, you know, they say like, there's all these love languages or whatnot. And you know, one of them is like acts of service. So like when Charlie was little or especially needed more help, like at night, he'd be like, I'll put Charlie to sleep tonight. And like, that's like, that's my love language. It's like is an act of you service. helping. Yeah, totally. Yes. And so, yes. yeah, but, um, on to, you know, I want to make sure that I spend a little time allowing you to talk about, not allowing you, but, you know, talking about occupational therapy in general, because that's mm-hmm. one of the, the themes that has come up in this podcast is like understanding the role of different people who might be on your multidisciplinary team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to help you. And also people who maybe you've never been referred to before for some unknown reason. Mm-hmm. Um, or the reason is that, yeah, our profession has been traditionally like about rehabilitation. Like you injure yourself and you're going to get like, yeah. there's a period where you're expected to like get back to your prior level of function. Mm-hmm. And, um, but with chronic conditions, mm-hmm. which millions and millions and millions and millions of people have, we're not, it's not so straightforward, right? It's not like, okay, you get diagnosed with RA and then you're going to get back to your prior level of function in three months or something. So, but in general, so sorry, already on my soapbox, but um, what is, you know, in your experience, the occupational therapy's role in helping people with, you know, just autonomy and in EDS? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There really isn't like a traditionally what's the, you know, the role, because I feel like we are making that now. I mean, I, I know therapists have been seeing people with hypermobility forever, but it's not necessarily been a big area of our practice. So um, in hypermobility, it's actually very similar, I think, to arthritis and what your guests have, I'm sure, heard um, people talk about in the past, but really like self-management of your condition, whether that is, um, you know, using uh, 
um, like sleep hygiene techniques, energy conservation and, and fatigue management strategies of how do I basically like work smarter, not harder? How do I do the same things, but do them efficiently? I mean, I'm like, I, I call myself the queen of efficiency because I, people are like, I don't know how you do all, all you do. It's like, well, I really have systems in place to, to do things that don't always work, but you know, I do my best to do things efficiently. And then, um, similar to arthritis, you know, a lot of recommendations for, uh, whether it's compression gloves, um, to help with hand pain, um, making uh, custom, um, orthotics or splints that can go over, you know, your hand or your wrist, your thumb or your fingers with hypermobile, um, digits or fingers. We often use what we call like ring splints. They basically look just like rings, but they prevent your fingers from hyperextending. And so we'll measure people for those. Um, we'll create those, you know, make those ourselves or, um, or help people to find where they can get them online. And I feel like there's just a million and one things that, that we do, but it, it, at the end of the day, it comes back to uh, that idea of self-management. And so whenever I talk with therapists even, and if there are any therapists listening, you know, it's like, well, how the insurance tells us that we have to get people back to where they were, or they have to be making progress. And what if they're just maintaining, you know, you're not allowed to do things that are just like maintaining their function. And so the way I, I look at a lot of the goals and the stuff we do is, is really about, um, teaching strategies and helping people to follow through on those strategies on their own. And so it's not always that my goal is like, you're going to quote unquote, get better or that you're all of a sudden going to, you know, have this all managed, but do you know what to do when your symptoms get worse? You know, like I want this person to have three strategies that they're going to know to do when their pain gets worse or, you know, five different forms of mindfulness or breathing techniques that they can use to help their, their mindset or to help their, um, like their thinking skills actually, you know, and to be able to organize their brain. Yeah. So, and that's, and that's, I just want to give an example of that because there's a book from the American, um, occupational therapy association called occupational therapy practice guidelines for adults with arthritis and other rheumatic conditions. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is very congruent with that. You know, one of the examples of a goal that they gave, um, is client will use joint protection principles and adaptive strategies while performing gardening, other household activities and activity of activities of daily living that involve use of the lower extremities. And it's like, you know, those are the kind of, it doesn't have to be client will increase joint range of motion from X degrees to X degrees, or, you know, reduce self-reported pain. Another one is client. Another example from this article is client will use guided imagery or progressive relaxation and ice for pain management during rest breaks and after walking and cycling. So yeah, when I was looking at those guidelines, I thought it really is a, a misconception we have in our own profession. I think that we have to do rehab. So I'm sorry if I even contribute contributed to that. As I was saying earlier, I think it's just how we're taught initially in school is there's such a focus on rehabilitation and improving people's, um, sim like the actual symptoms of the physical body part, you know, not body parts, but body aspect of it. But, um, but you know, it's, it's actually about in, you can make the goals around implementing strategies that they can do in their everyday life. And when you say self-management, I want to make sure we define what that is, because it's interesting when I've used that phrase with some of the, my people in my group, they think it almost sounds like 
um, oh, you're just pawning it off on the patient. Like they have to just do it on their own. And it's, it's, it's true that self-management is to me, I just find define self-management as, you know, the tools that you use on a daily basis to manage your own symptoms. And the reason that, that is, it's, it is kind of like, um, it's an opportunity and it's also a bit of a burden, but the fact is that you, you are the only person that's going to live with yourself 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. So it is in your best interest to learn those tools. It's unfortunately with chronic conditions, it's not like you're going to be able to go to therapy for one hour a week and fix all of the issues. It's just not unfortunately going to happen. So, but sorry, what, how do you define what I was initially thinking about asking, how do you define what is self-management to you? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, because I do think, and I, you know, it just rolls off our tongue, right? Like we talk about it all day long. It's just, it's just a really important thing. Um, but it does, I think to patients sound like, what do you mean? You're just telling me I have to do this like by myself, but why do I need to go to somebody to tell me that? Um, no, I, I think the word I use all the time is empowering people because at the end of the day, it's great if there are providers and you have people on your team who are going to, to help you and that are going to, um, to sort of do things for you. But I, I often just really struggle with how that often, how that kind of patients end up feeling like I am dependent on this person in order for my body to be okay. You know, like I have to go to a chiropractor. I have to go to physical therapy every week for them to put me back in place or to, for them to fix, you know, X, Y, Z. And it, it, it really hurts my heart to hear people feel like someone else has to do something in order for them to be okay. And, and I know those strategies can be really helpful for people and there's a time and a place for them, especially in flares. But I just think how, how incredible if we can find ways for you to be able to do a lot of those things on your own. Um, and if you don't want to, you don't have to, right? Like there are professionals, especially when you don't have the capacity or the energy that can help with those things. But I want you to know how to have yourself at a different baseline on a day-to-day basis. And I think those are the self-management tools that, that we're looking at is instead of you constantly functioning at like a one out of 10, how do we help you to function at a, at least like a four or a five on a day-to-day basis with the tools you know and the tools you have that now you're empowered to, to be able to use? Things simple like sleep hygiene, you know, they don't have to be like, you're doing all of this stuff to yourself. You have to do it for yourself, um, but yeah. that, you, that you have that option and, and also, when there aren't professionals who know something about your condition, which is a lot of times the case with these conditions that I see, there aren't people who are experts. There aren't people who know what to do. And so you don't feel like helpless. You have those, those strategies that you're able to tap into. Yeah. I, I am. So you're like definitely preaching to to choir with me, but yeah, I think it is something that I know we both kind of honor is the fact that when you're very newly diagnosed, sometimes it can be really overwhelming, right. To learn that there is not necessarily like if there, the moment there's a fix, like a fix for rheumatoid arthritis, I'm going to be the first one to take it. Right. Like in a perfect world, we would have a fix for every ailment and go on our merry way and not have to do anything different, just live your life. But the fact is that since we don't have that for these chronic conditions, currently it is in our best interest to learn those tools. And 
Um, and you know, yeah, does that mean that you have to be the one that physically does and cognitively does everything? It could be part of the tool could be, you know, um, delegating, you know, I do a lot of delegating (laughs) to my spouse and, you know, when Charlie was littler to caregivers, you know, hired caregivers and, um, so, but anyway, but yeah, I know that you and I are both really passionate about like elevating the role of, you know, self-management and elevating the role of OT in yeah. helping people, um, learn the tools for self-management and like, um, what I, I wanted to let you have a platform to, this is a little, maybe a little venting session, but to talk about like, what about the current healthcare system kind of led you to be so passionate about this and like in a perfect world, what would you, what would you want? Like. I love, I love to talk about like, if I rule the world, every newly diagnosed patient would get X, Y, Z. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Oh man. I haven't even like taken the time to dream of what that would look like, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it is crazy how little the patients that I see have gotten. And, um, so, so for POTS, for example, actually, um, you know, they come to me and I, at the very minimum, explain to them their condition, what is happening and why it's happening. And like, come on, that should be so basic, right? But the reality is we live in a world where doctors spend two to five minutes with patients, maybe eight, you know, maybe if your your first appointment is 30 minutes, if you're really lucky at an academic institution, but um, even then it's a lot of testing and not often a lot of answers. You know, you get a lot on the front end and I think you don't, you don't, necessarily get like, well, what does this mean for me? And how do, what do I do about it? And so um, the idea of plain language of explaining a condition in very simplified, understandable, patient-friendly language. Um, Also for, for POTS, like we have these kind of basic lifestyle interventions, which are, you know, fluid, like hydration and, and sodium. They're actually supposed to eat more sodium to help with their circulation and blood volume, the amount of blood in their body. And it's amazing how much it can help once they, they're able to do it, but people are just told, increase your salt, you know, salt, your foods more often drink some Gatorade. And it's like, wait a minute, a Gatorade has, you know, not, not almost a hundred, hundred milligrams of sodium versus something like a liquid IV or these other tools that we have have way more sodium. And so you can get a really big bang for your buck kind of an idea and those are just so foundational for, for treatment and it's as well as compression garments, you know, not just like you should wear compression socks, but like how tight should they be? What length should they be? Um, how can we maximize the benefit of these tools? And, um, and then for, for hypermobility and things, you know, there's so many pain management techniques um, and fatigue management and, and some of the brain fog stuff that um, that seem very basic. And I think they're minimized because it's, it's like, well, it's just these little tools or whatever, but in the life of a person, they can make a really big impact when you're having so much difficulty. So I would love every patient to see an OT and an OT who knows something about these conditions. Um, and, and, and a big part of our role as an OT, which is actually newer in our, our framework of our guidelines of our practice is, is healthcare management. And that's the idea of like, it's, it's to me, a lot of that patient empowerment with self-management of like, how do I even coordinate all these doctor's visits? How do I even like figure out how to you know, it's a full-time job trying to manage my health. People tell me yes, that all the time. Yes. Same with rheumatoid. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. 
And I, yeah, that you, I, I'm such a nerd for OT. So yeah, in the OT practice framework three, that was under like instrumental activities of daily living, you know, like health management and maintenance. And then it got moved for the, our fourth edition. And that's like our Bible of occupational therapy is the OT practice framework or sorry, I don't mean to make a religious reference, but it's like our foundational document. And the other thing that's in that, the, the fourth edition is population health and, and interventions at the population level, which is really exciting to me, which means not just seeing one patient for one hour, but being able to do like what you and I are both doing with social media, you know, using social media, you can make a video and affect, you know, you can educate 2 million people. Um, like our, my friend, um, equip me OT. She recently, Lindsay, she was on the podcast recently. She, she just did a, an article or sorry, a video showing how, and I'll put this in the comments or the, I would say comments in the show notes. Um, that it's, it's got almost 3 million views now on Instagram. And it's about a, it's a rubber thing that helps you put on and take off the compression garments. And, you know, it's, what's exciting to me is it's not just views for views sake, right? Not to be like, look at me, I have 2 million views. It's the idea that 3 million people now have seen that, that there's a way to put on and take off compression garments that might make your life easier. That is such a hard thing to do when you have hand pain or weakness from arthritis or, you know, EDS. Um, and so anyway, like the, the idea that we are taking our skills and our training and being able to affect more people is really exciting. Sorry, I'm just preaching to the choir, but I did want to say just a little sprinkling, a little research in here that, you know, for those maybe providers who might be listening, health providers, whether it's doctors or occupational therapists, the primary audience from what I hear feedback on is patients, but, um, but a lot of patients are also providers. Um, and there's level a evidence for education and self-management programs to improve performance and quality of life and reduce depressive symptoms and pain in arthritis. And that's from those same OT guidelines. So it's not like we need to wait for more evidence we need to actually implement the evidence that's like very basic and already there. So it's just, that's why I get frustrated because <laughs> I'm like, why are we not doing? And that's why, anyway, my longer story of why I started arthritis life is that, you know, I was finding that there's many reasons why I started arthritis life, but that in some parts of occupational therapy, we're over-serving, you know, in the schools and stuff, there's kids getting services who shouldn't necessarily don't necessarily need to qualify uh, for OT for skilled you know, train, uh, therapy. And then there's people with these really disabling, you know, quality of life, threatening conditions like EDS POTS arthritis, who are getting nothing. So I'm like, we need to do something. But anyway, um, so, um, on the interest of wrapping it up only cause I have to take Charlie to school <laughs> soon in the next like 10 minutes. Um, I always like to, to ask my, um, audience, my, my interviewees, in general, you know, what, what words of wisdom do you have for people who are newly diagnosed, you know, with a chronic health condition, whether it's an inflammatory arthritis or EDS or POTS, what, what, I know this is such a broad question, but what would you say to them? Yeah. Yeah. I think it it is, it's, it's a hard, it's it's hard to wrap it up in just a, you know, a single word, but um, I think the idea of, of getting curious, like you mentioned before, you know, with mindfulness, um, trying to look at things in, in a different way, if you can. And, and that's where I think a lot of times what happens with these, these patients that 
Um, they don't have answers. They don't have anybody that seeing an occupational therapist can be someone to bounce ideas off of. And so then people, you know, it's like, well, great if I have somebody, but what if you don't have someone where you are? And so that's when, um, you know, trying to sort of take a step back, looking at um, the, the groups that already exist, like yours, Cheryl, you know, in the communities that are out there, trying to find those and and just kind of look at things from a different angle, because you're not necessarily going to get that from the medical provider um, who's going to say, these are your options. These are your drugs. There's not really much that we can do for this condition, you know, go on your way, but to say like, what else is there? Like, let me just sort of get curious about, is there a different way I can do something? And then to be open to that too, because it's not necessarily easy when someone tells you, I don't have a magic pill for your fatigue. I don't have a magic thing for your brain fog. You're going to need to sort of put in some of the, the work, which is really hard when you have fatigue and you don't have any yeah. extra energy, but what could you do? How could you wrap your head? You know, like what are some other um, techniques that could be helpful that might seem small in the moment, but could have some really big beneficial outcomes down the road? Absolutely. I, yeah, I, that makes perfect sense to me. And is there, you know, before we completely wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to share about these conditions or your experience um, that you haven't had a chance to say yet? Yeah, I think just um, even like kind of what I just alluded to that online, there are so many resources and what you're talking about with, with Lindsay and with your work and, and the stuff that I'm, I'm trying to put out is just like, even when you don't have someone near you or you don't have a therapist who knows something about these conditions, you know, you don't have a Cheryl or you don't have a, you know, whoever near you, there are a lot of therapists who are willing to learn. There's a lot of people who are, who are, who are interested and who are, um, can be advocates for you, especially if you can give them some resources. And so when you can find, um, resources like we're offering that, you know, try and, and find a therapist who's just, who's just, well, you know, open to education, open to ideas. And then they have so much knowledge. They went to school for a, a long time to be able to help you even more with the information that we're putting out to really cater it to you and mm -hmm. to make it individualized. But um, just giving them those resources can often be helpful because therapists don't always have time you know, to yeah. do the, to do the research for every, every kind of not as common condition, you know? And so if you can help them empower them with those resources, it could be great. That's so, yeah, I love that. And I, I wanted to make sure I give you a chance to say where people can find you <laughs> online. You're like me, you have a lot of different accounts. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm the biggest thing I am on is, is Instagram for sure. So it's just my name, Emily Rich OT. Um, the OT is not in my name, but that's my yeah. account, Emily Rich OT. And uh, most of what I do is definitely Ellers Danlos, um, POTS, and then also long COVID um, because that's fitting into a lot of this world and just want to be able to help as many people as I can. Um, and then same thing on Twitter. It's, you know, Emily Rich OT, LinkedIn, all of the places you can find me. And then yeah. you have one of my favorite names for a YouTube channel. 
Oh, just <laughs> let you tell them what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's O the possibilities. So it's like O T, you know, O the and then pot so abilities. That's and like multiple levels of yes. <laughs> I, I love a good pun. So yes, nice. there's a few um YouTube and, and podcast podcast videos out there that hopefully I'll I'll add more to over the years. So yeah, I'm very, no, I'm very excited about your work and I'm, I'm glad that we've connected again through social media. It's amazing um, to see, you know, that, I mean, I've learned a lot from your channel. Um, I'm sure those listening, I, again, I feel like it's been meant to be ever since I started this new group of Room to Thrive in um, mm -hmm. April, I've gotten a lot more questions about POTS and EDS and I've seen more awareness of it. So I know it's a topic, even there's a Reddit thread the other day or someone brought it up like hey nice. does anyone else have you know and then there was actually an ot who has eds and ra by the way who commented i was like oh i gotta get her on too so cool. anyway yeah, yeah. i know yeah. we gotta all connect but thank you yeah. thank you so much i really appreciate your time again knowing that you have you know only so many spoons uh, throughout the day um, i appreciate that you spent some of them energy spoons uh, that you spent them on this podcast today so thank you thank you so much cheryl thanks for all you do Thank you. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.